Good afternoon, and you are very welcome to the sixth instalment of the 2021 Bar of Ireland Green Street Lecture Series. This afternoon, our talk will be given by Sean Galan, Senior Counsel, and he will be speaking on the very interesting topic of the trial of William Joyce, also known as Lord Haw Haw. So thank you very much, Sean. On the 3rd of January 1946, William Joyce, convicted at trial of the crime of high treason, was woken from his cell in Wandsworth Prison at 6am. Sentenced to death by hanging, all avenues of appeal exhausted, he dressed in a blue serge suit and readied himself for a nine o'clock appointment with state executioner Albert Pierpoint. Having put on weight while in custody, a drop of seven feet and four inches was calculated to ensure that Joyce would be dispatched with maximum efficiency. The one-minute walk from condemned cell to execution chamber, conducted in the company of the prison governor, was made without complaint. Having placed a noose round the neck of Joyce, Pierpoint released the lever, which opened the trapdoor beneath him, resulting in Joyce's spine being torn completely across. His remains were immediately taken to an unmarked grave in the grounds of the prison. For a man who lived by his voice, and who ultimately died for it, a man of whom it was said he was simply incapable of shutting up. There was no speech, no last words, no protestations, and significantly, no apologies. In fact, his last public utterance were the words, not guilty on his arraignment. Large crowds gathered outside the prison that morning, not because the execution was public, but simply to see the one formal step which was open to the public, a certificate of execution being fixed to the main gate of the prison. Movie tone news that day got to the heart of the matter, announcing in sombre tones that the voice of Joyce is now silent and that he had been hanged, the only fate a traitor to the country could expect. But the English nation was also told in the same short broadcast that no man could have had a fairer hearing. This might strike one as a curious thing for a newscaster to say on that particular day, but this was a curious case. And one of the central curiosities was this. Almost a month later, on the 1st of February 1946, the House of Lords gave its reasons as to why Joyce should be put to death. Joyce would never get to hear those reasons, and it appears that the Home Secretary, who Joyce petitioned for clemency, did not need to hear them. How had this point been reached in the life of a man who was not yet 40, who by the time of his death appeared to have lived two lives of infamy? Trying to get to the bottom of who Joyce was is not easy, much that was said of him during his life that was untrue has endured. There is much revisionism in the writings about Joyce. There are those who wish to downplay the strength of fascism in the United Kingdom in the 1930s and Joyce's relationship with Oswald Mosley. There are those who seek to portray Joyce as marginal, isolated. And on the other hand, there are those who seek to redraw him as being no more than some class of comic turn or indeed something of a rascal. And he was much more than that. At the time of his death, there were a variety of public perceptions of him. He was depicted in newspapers as variously a monocled, top-hatted fixture of the English establishment, 
He even featured in a song, The Humbug of Hamburg. He was often pictured as a black-shirted, scar-faced, mustachioed stormtrooper. In other representations, he was depicted as a half-educated peasant from the west of Ireland, a patsy for the fascist ideas of others. Indeed, a novel still in print, uh, produced in 1940, entitled The Death of Lord Haw Haw, summed up Joyce's character as someone who was known to have cheated at cards in school. Finding the real Joyce is also made more difficult by the false trails he himself set. He often signed his name differently. He readily changed his birthplace and birth date. And the enigmatic approach to his biography is best illustrated, perhaps, by the fact that the date of birth on Joyce's headstone is different from that on his birth certificate. The one thing that can be said with certainty is that Joyce was Brooklyn-born. His father, Michael Joyce, was born in Mayo, a strong Catholic Unionist who left for the United States in 1888. Michael Joyce couldn't have anticipated the legal reverberations that would occur a half a century later as a consequence of his application to become an American citizen, which was granted in October 1894. Joyce's mother, to whom he was very close, was Gertrude Emily Brooke, known as Queenie, she came from a prominent, well-off Lancashire family and claimed uh, Ulster Unionist connections. Certainly her family were staunch Protestants and Unionists. Michael and she met on one of Michael's trips home to Ireland and despite protests of her family, they married on the 2nd of May 1905 in a Catholic service in New York. William was born on the 24th of April 1906. The family returned to Ireland in 1909, settling first in Mayo, where Michael bought and ran a pub. He also established a number of burgeoning business interests and achieved a measure of prosperity, uh, and ultimately a move to Salt Hill in Galway. Michael's purchase of a number of properties for rent was also to prove significant in the development of young Joyce, as one of his significant tenants was the Royal Irish Constabulary. Joyce, on his father's insistence, was raised as a Catholic and was educated by the Jesuits in St. Ignatius's College. While recollections uh, of those who attended there differ, he seems to have generally been regarded as somewhere between very good and brilliant as a student. He was accomplished in Latin, Greek, he spoke French and German, wrote poetry, could play sheet music on piano from memory, and it was also clear in terms of universal uh, recollections of him that he loved to fight, both rhetorically and literally, and once perhaps accurately was described as a little knuckle duster of a man. He ultimately rejected Catholicism, owing to his closeness to his Protestant mother, and simply refused to accept the doctrine of no salvation without church, and said so in school. His taste uh, for debate and argument quickly developed as a young boy and his political formation emerged firstly through a hatred of Irish nationalism. As agrarian and nationalist violence began to simmer all around him, the schoolboy Joyce did not hesitate to openly express pro-British sentiments to anyone who'd who would listen. Even as pressure was brought to bear on his father for renting property to British interests, and at least one of his properties was burned to the ground, Joyce did not desist. After the arrival of the Black and Tans and Auxiliary Forces, Joyce openly associated with them on the streets of Galway. 
Accounts differ as to whether he was an intelligence source for the British Army, Joyce himself claimed that he was, or whether he was something of a teenage nuisance to them. But what seems clear is that he was at least a runner or courier for the Black and Tans, and this came to the attention of local IRA units. By December 1921, a decision had been taken by the IRA to kill him. As Colin Holmes, historian, points out, or as he puts it, fortune rarely smiled on Joyce in his life, but it did on the appointed day for his assassination. His father had moved the family, thereby changing Joyce's route home, frustrating the would-be killer. Rightly fearing that this would not be the end of the matter, William Joyce fled Ireland that December of 1921 to join the Worcestershire Regiment of the English Army in Norton, England. He fled alone and was 15 years of age. Uh, not for the first time, he was subsequently discharged when it was discovered that he had yet again lied about his age. He went to London, uh, pursued further education there, achieving a first-class degree in English, commencing a master's in philology, and throughout his time there, the British Union and its military was still very much uh, to the core, to the core of everything he believed in, and he applied to join the officer training corps while studying there. Importantly in doing so, he claimed to be British, and his uh, effusive letter of application, described by someone who received it as oily, in which he said he would draw his sword for the crown, was years later to be opened in the trial against him. His hatred of Irish nationalism never waned and, and was now married to a growing hatred for Bolshevism. The anti-Semite in Joyce at this stage began to emerge. To search for the source of his anti-Semitism is perhaps futile, and an attempt to put a rational structure on it or find a coherent basis for the irrational might be self-defeating. But one of the important things to remember about Joyce is that his anti-Semitism was deep-seated it was scabrous, it was violent, and importantly, it was early. While dog whistle anti-Semitism of a type not uncommon today, for example, references to international financiers and bankers, was to be found in many respectable circles then, and openly referred to in the newspapers of the time, Joyce expressed himself in the most direct way on this topic, and was a very early adopter of an exterminatory form of anti-Semitism. Throughout this decade, he began to fully form politically, first allying himself with the Conservative Party in England. Love of union and empire informed everything. He began to see Marxism almost as a form of Judaism itself and described Marxism as a verminous old Hebrew system. The emergence of Mussolini, as he saw it as the saviour of Italy, was also an inspiration to him and he joined the British Fascisti movement. In this period, Joyce suffered what became his outstanding physical characteristic, a facial scar from the bottom of his ear to his lip. This is often recorded as having been inflicted in the course of an affray or street battle between fascists and socialists or, or communists. In fact, this injury occurred when Joyce was stewarding not a meeting of fascists, but a meeting of the Lambeth North constituency section of the Conservative Party on the 27th of October, 1924. The local Conservative candidate was Jack Lazarus, who, as it happened, was Jewish. What actually happened in the course of the meeting is hard to determine, not helped by the existence of many mutually exclusive accounts of what happened. 
But in the course of an outbreak of violence at the meeting, Joyce was severely slashed across the face and hospitalized. He always claimed this injury had been inflicted by what he described as a Jewish communist. This was a claim he repeated with regularity and embellished with detail throughout the 1930s and referred to that injury as his Lambeth honor. His first wife, Hazel, who he married in 1927, just after turning 21, told historian Colm Holmes that that account was not true and that the injury, in fact, was inflicted by an Irish woman. And Holmes himself cites a local paper from the time, the Lambeth Free Press, which reported on the meeting and reported that just before the violence broke out, there was an outbreak of song. And that outbreak of song commenced with the song, Come Back to Aaron. And so it seems perhaps that the IRA by this time had neither forgiven nor forgotten. Joy subsequently fell in thrall to Oswald Mosley and the British Union of Fascists. He spoke up and down the country in an intense, hectoring, dynamic style for the BUF between 1933 and 1937, and became a full-time director of propaganda in 1934. He began to write prodigiously for publications such as Fascist Week, The Black Shirt, The British Union Quarterly, and by now he was under the regular attention of MI5. The electoral failure in 1937 of the British Union of Fascists led to a falling out with Mosley, which itself led to Joyce's redundancy as a cost-cutting measure. Uh, his marriage, which produced two daughters, had by now fallen apart. And at this point, he met and fell in love with Margaret White, a full-time secretary for the British Union of Fascists in Manchester, whom he married on the 13th of February, 1937, days after the finalization of his divorce. Uh, while this marriage endured, it was characterized by abuse, uh, alcohol abuse, and infidelity. At this time, Joyce's ties with Germany began to strengthen, and he formed the National Socialist League in 1937 and began to nurture German contacts. Here, he openly allied his anti-Semitism with that of Adolf Hitler, who he identified as the only European leader who understood what he described as the Jewish threat, and national in National Socialism now, began to describe the Jews as a distinct race characterized by materialism and lack of patriotism. He began to write openly about their removal from society, and by 1936, he was writing of Jews as, quote, sub-men and a nuisance to be eliminated. The pull of Germany was made stronger in the light of the failure to make popular or electoral progress in England. He was under increasing financial pressure, and war was now almost certain. Another element in his decision, his fatal decision to leave for Germany, it is suggested is that internment of security suspects was about to come into force. And there is some evidence that Joyce was tipped off that Saturday, the 26th of August, 1939, was nominated as the date on which he would be arrested. In any event, on that weekend, Joyce left for Germany with Margaret, and he would never see his children again. The tip-off proved accurate. His brothers and a number of associates were arrested and in turn interned just at that time. In Berlin, a chance encounter with one of his well-connected Blue Blood BUF supporters, Dorothy Eckersley, proved crucial. She made some introdu introductions uh, within the equivalent of the uh, BBC, which was now under the firm control and direction of Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels had a unique insight into the potential importance of radio as a medium. 
As early as 1933, he had said that radio will be for the 20th century, what newspapers were to the 19th, and what the printing press was for the Reformation, and said two things were needed for Nazi success, the airplane and the radio. And on the 18th of September 1939, Joyce entered the employment of German radio. His German workbook, which set out the details of his employment, uh, his pay, his conditions, his right to holidays, would eventually come back to haunt him as would the existence of some other documents to which I'll now turn. The passport history of Joyce prior to his arrival in Germany is important in terms of understanding the subsequent developments at his trial and his execution. On the 4th of July 1933, Joyce applied for a British passport and described himself in that application as a British subject by birth and listed his birthplace as Galway. On the 24th of September 1938, he applied for a one-year renewal again on the same basis and repeated that act on the 24th of August 1939, again claiming to be a British citizen. After initial tentative voice tests, Joyce was allowed broadcast on the foreign language service and threw himself into that role. His output was prolific. Uh, he sometimes broadcast several times a day Margaret also broadcast weekly talks to women and did shows on fake news and fake lies in the British press. But she lacked his charisma and distinctive turn of phrase and Goebbels appreciated the Joyce effort describing Joyce himself as a gem. The prominence Joyce quickly achieved in the United Kingdom can only be understood in context. Prior to the outbreak of war, the BBC was regarded as Puritan in its output and had rules, particularly on a Sunday, that Archbishop McQuaid would have been proud of. Long before the war, people were already tuning to Radio Luxembourg, which was hugely popular, and German stations for music and light entertainment. With the imposition of the blackout and censorship, British people were starved of news and more particularly starved of entertainment. The scene was perfect for the emergence of this irrever irreverent, occasionally profane voice a shock jock of his time, and people turned to the broadcasts in their millions. The BBC conducted a study of the effect of the broadcasts from 1939 at the request of the Ministry of Information, and by the end of January 1940, one in six adults was a regular listener, and three in six described themselves as occasional listeners. Reasons for listening varied, but as the war progressed, people tuned in, in the first instance for news, news of who had been captured, which wasn't broadcast by the BBC. And also, it appeared that the privations of war meant that people occasionally enjoyed the digs that were pointed towards their own ruling class. Joyce had a particular loathing for Churchill. He described Churchill in one early broadcast as a whiskey-guzzling, cigar-chomping, bovine, decadent liar. And he always described him as the degenerate of Downing Street. Not everyone in England was unreceptive to this while still supporting the war effort. The creation of the Haw Haw moniker, by which he soon became known, is attributed to Jonah Barrington of the Daily Express and first emerged in September of 1939. At that point, the Germans did not identify the broadcasters, and there were a number of them, in these early foreign language broadcasts. And it's clear that the original use of the nickname Haw Haw was applied to a broadcast that was not and could not have been Joyce. 
and indeed Haw Haw was used generically in the early stages of the broadcasts for a number of different broadcasters of British extraction. But as the Joyce broadcasts increased in number and distinctiveness, the name became associated with his nasal voice while he was still broadcasting anonymously towards the end of 1939. He eventually identified himself on air on the 2nd of April 1941, announcing that he had left England because he would not fight for jury. By the end of 1941, he was very well known, very well paid, and living in Berlin. He had also by this time become a naturalised German citizen, which was granted to him on the 26th of September 1940. It's impossible to measure the precise effect of the broadcasts in the United Kingdom. Much of what has been written is post-war hindsight and written in the light of the Nazi defeat. Oddly, and this also features with studies after the war of Churchill's broadcasts, many people in the post-war period had clear recollection of things that were never broadcast at all. J.W. Hall, one writer suggests, I think wrongly, that the Haw Haw nickname had exposed Joyce to such ridicule that by the autumn of 1939, the broadcasts were having no effect. However, it's clear that jamming the broadcasts was discussed at government level, and the popularity of the broadcasts from 1940 to 1942 was a matter of real concern to the British government. Hall also said, with no little irony, that the broadcasts were neutralised as a result of Barrington's description of Joyce as, quote, a brainless idiot of the type of Bertie Wooster in Mr. P.G. Woodhouse's books. Here again, Hall gets it wrong, I think, and misses a trick, and missed perhaps the real Woodhouse comparison that was there to be made. Because Woodhouse did make a number of broadcasts from Berlin himself in 1941 for the German Foreign Office. These were comedic treatments of life as an internee, Woodhouse himself having been in France at the time of the German invasion. And the broadcasts were also intended to convey, particularly to an American audience, that life was materially good in Germany, notwithstanding the war, the hope being that the Americans might not join the war. Briefly in turn, Woodhouse broadcast from Berlin while being put up in five-star conditions in the Adlon Hotel. While his work was removed from some libraries in the United Kingdom as a result, and he was denounced in Parliament, he never faced a prosecution, still less a scaffold, for what he described as his indiscretion. Woodhouse, as Christopher Hitchens put it, was acquitted without trial on the charge of treason by an artistic community that rallied to him, and some of whom gave him a fool's pardon. In his opening broadcast, he said, I'm often asked by young men how to become an internee. The best way to do it is do what I did, buy a villa on the coast of France and stay there till the Germans come along. You buy the villa and the Germans do the rest. He spoke of his time subsequently in Upper Silesia and said, if this is Upper Silesia, what must Lower Silesia be like? A good line from which the fizz departs when one considers the subsequent location of Auschwitz death camp. Woodhouse was perhaps saved by his indifference, his lack of sincerity, the fact that he did the broadcasts for an easy life. With Joyce, everything was done with a desperate, grinding sincerity, and he was always going to be viewed in a different light after the war. After the initial heady broadcasting days of the phony war and blitzkrieg, 
Joyce's fortunes turned. After Stalingrad and an encroaching Red Army, the broadcasts became more unhinged and divorced from reality. He moved to Luxembourg and from there to Hamburg. Family life had become a disaster, both parties being guilty of repeated infidelity. And Joyce was, by now, drinking whatever he could lay his hands on whenever he could. His final broadcast was made from Hamburg on the 30th of April 1945, and he was manifestly drunk in the course of it. He announced in the course of the broadcast that the German spirit was not broken, and that the great choice now was between civilization and Bolshevization. He said the German people were modest in their wishes, and without any irony, said self-deception is a dangerous pastime, especially these days. He signed off, Heil Hitler, and farewell. It would emerge that very day Hitler, his hero, had taken his own life. By this time, false papers in the name of William Hansen had been secured through Goebbels and the propaganda department, Goebbels being particularly anxious that Joyce not be captured. And with a view to escaping to Scandinavia, Joyce and Margaret fled to the border area of Flensburg. Their accommodation was arranged, and Joyce was given one task, to lie low. Lying low, however, was beyond him. On the 28th of May, 1945, the brilliantly named Captain Alexander Adrian Licorice, accompanied by Lieutenant Geoffrey Perry, were part of a reconnaissance regiment gathering wood near the Danish border. Joyce was out walking at the time, and his inability to shut up was to prove his downfall. He approached the soldiers and spoke to them, first in French and then in English, to tell them where, where more wood might be found. Perry, recognising the voice, actually asked him, you wouldn't happen to be William Joyce, would you? Joyce made a move for his pocket, intending to produce his false papers, and Perry shot him in the leg. Lieutenant Perry didn't give evidence at his trial. If he had, another hidden irony in the life of Joyce might have been revealed. Perry was born Horst Pinscher in Berlin and had arrived in the United Kingdom in the 1930s and was initially himself interned as a refugee before joining the uh, British Army using an anglicised name. Joyce had in fact been captured and shot by a Jewish refugee. Joyce was brought back to England on the 16th of June and appeared at Bow Street Magistrates Court on the 18th of June before being returned for trial to the Central Criminal Court. His appearance there was keenly anticipated. A voice could now be put, or a face could now be put to the disembodied voice. And some surprise was registered that the man in possession of one of the most famous voices in Europe stood in the dock at five foot, five inches. What Joyce represented and what his trial meant has been the subject of much comment, leaving a popular perception of him inconsistent with the reality. People were not queuing up to claim him as their own, and the framing of the narrative as to who he was and what he represented started early. To take one uh, example, the Penguin Books Anthology of Famous Trials, edited by James Hodge, had a general principle that at least 20 years would have to pass before a trial would be considered for inclusion. The Joyce trial made it into the 1954 edition and was analysed in jaunty style by the eminent English QC J.W. Hall.
However, before saying anything at all about the trial, he engaged in a memorable digression in reference to a widely held view that Joyce had an upper class and specifically Oxford accent. And Hall wrote as follows. There were even those who insulted our senior university by alleging that it was an Oxford accent. But this was an accent such as Balliol never conceived, nor Magdalen heard. Indeed, as an Oxonian, I'm prepared to assert that if, which is not admitted, there be such a thing as an Oxford accent, that accent is not, thank heaven, the accent of William Joyce, which may have been some sort of hybrid between a Yankee twang and an Irish brogue. Having been returned for trial, uh, the trial was presided over by Judge Frederick James Tucker. Joyce himself was represented by Gerald Slade KC, and the Crown was represented by Sir Hartley Shawcross, KC, MP, and recently appointed Attorney General, leading light in the ascendant Labour Party, something of a matinee idol of his time who went on to prosecute in the Nuremberg trials. On the 17th of September, Joyce was arraigned on three counts of treason. These counts were contrary to the Treason Act of 1351. The first one, alleging that he had adhered to the enemies of the king by broadcasting propaganda between September of 1939 and May of 1945. The second being that again, he had adhered to the enemies of our Lord the King by becoming naturalized as a subject of the realm of Germany in September 1940. Both of those charges were based on the theory that Joyce was a British subject. The third charge was more narrowly based, and this was that Joyce had adhered to the King's enemies by broadcasting propaganda between the 18th of September 1939 and the 2nd of July 1940, the significance of the second date being the date on which Joyce's renewed British passport expired. There was huge interest in the trial to include international interest, and Rebecca West, author of The Meaning of Treason, filed reports at the time for the New Yorker from court. While reading the transcript of the trial can give a level of insight into the prosecution, one of West's important insights was a reminder of the physical environment in which the trial actually took place. This was a city drawn in rubble through which the jury must have approached the courthouse each day. She described the court building itself as sliced like a cake. The glass dome through which daylight used to stream, cold as justice itself, was long shattered. Much of the building was now in perpetual darkness, and the courtroom itself was lit by electric light. West was not a writer to mince her words, and described Joyce upon his arraignment as not very ugly, but exhaustively so. And the effect of the suit he was wearing was that of an Eastern European peasant driven off the land into the city. Further, her American readers were told this in relation to the rumours that Joyce was Irish. She said, There was no doubt about it when one saw him in the dock. He had a Donnybrook air. He was a not very fortunate example of the small, nippy, jig-dancing type of Irish peasant. In reference to his brother Quinton, she said nobody could mistake him for anything but an Irish peasant, and he was anything but. And she said there were strong traces of Irish origin in the followers of Joyce who attended court every day. They were, in fact, almost entirely English and Scots. And then her coup de grace 
was this. In terms of Joyce's followers, she said they were for the most part of darker complexion than one would expect in subscribers to the Aryan theory. And so the scene was set. It felt to Shawcross to open the case for the crown, and he showed his ability to wrap an iron fist in a silk glove by opening in the following terms. He said to the jury, we may in times past have read about this man in the newspapers. We may have discussed his activities, and indeed his activities were notorious enough. It may be even perhaps in those dark days of 1940, when this country was standing alone against the whole force and might of Nazi Germany, that some of us may have heard, or thought we heard, his voice on the wireless. And perhaps at that time, some of us formed feelings of dislike and detestation at what he was doing. And perhaps later on, some of us heard with a not altogether unnatural satisfaction that he had been apprehended and was to be brought to trial. He then said, if you have thoughts like that, put them out of your mind. For good measure, he continued to inform the jury that the prisoner, as he referred to Joyce throughout the trial, had been awarded the Cross of War Merit Award by Adolf Hitler himself. The first two counts in the trial turned on citizenship, and the balance of the case turned on a question of duty and allegiance to the crown. Put in terms by Shawcross to the jury, so long as the prince affords protection to the subject, the subject owes a debt of allegiance to the prince. Protection and allegiance, he said, the one is drawn from the other. And memorably, he said, in relation to the passport, that Joyce, the prisoner, he had not merely clothed himself with the status of a British subject, he had, so to speak, enveloped himself in the Union Jack and secured for himself the greatest protection that he could secure. The prosecution called a mere five witnesses over the course of less than half a day, and much of the evidence was largely unchallenged. Inspector Albert Hunt gave evidence for the prosecution of a familiarity with Joyce's voice, having attended meetings of the BUF and the National Socialist League, which were addressed by Joyce before the war. He had, however, never met him and had never spoken to him. He gave evidence that in September or October 1939, he couldn't be sure, he had heard a broadcast where he claimed that Joyce announced that Folkestone and Dover had been destroyed. He couldn't remember what station he had listened to and he'd no other detail of the broadcast. While Joyce never denied the general nature of his activities or the general nature of the broadcasts, this Dover-Folkestone broadcast was one of the few things he did deny and challenge at trial. And of course, it's clear that no bomb fell on the United Kingdom until the autumn of 1940. And of all the people in the world, the people of Folkestone and Dover were well aware of that. Indeed, it was said that a propagandist of Joyce's intelligence would never have made that claim at that time in the war. That evidence from Inspector Hunt, as we'll see, was to take on an unanticipated significance in the trial. Hunt also said that he heard Joyce on a number of other occasions over subsequent years and took detailed transcribed notes of those broadcasts which were produced and read to the jury. Captain Licorice was called in relation to the capture of Joyce and the seizure of the false papers. Uh, Shawcross at this stage described the shooting in the leg as showing more mercy than many people would have in the circumstances. Captain William Scarden was called in relation to a caution statement he took from Joyce 
in his hospital bed, in which Joyce defiantly set out his position, his belief in national socialism, his belief in the disproportionate influence of what he said were the Jews in the United Kingdom, his desire for reconciliation between Germany and the United Kingdom, and he wished to make it clear that he rejected any suggestion that he'd ever done anything underhand or deceitful against the United Kingdom. The rest of the prosecution case was essentially based on a slew of documents produced, the various passport applications and renewals, uh, his German papers, the British passport was in fact never produced and never found, his order of merit awarded by Hitler was produced, and various documents relating to his pay and conditions and his German workbook. The prosecution closed and there was a strong application by Slade for the defence that there was simply no case to answer and that, in fact, there was no jurisdiction to try him. He argued that it had to be proved, at least in respect of counts one and two, that Joyce was a subject. And Slade put it colourfully in the following terms. He said, if I am a Chinese, by screaming from the rooftops 50,000 times that I am a British subject, I do not become one. The position does not change if I swear an oath to it. And he said that none of Joyce's claims to British nationality could be used as evidence of that status. The case of Roger Casement was invoked, which might not have pleased Joyce, but the Casement case was an answer to one of the first theoretical legal questions and hurdles in the case. And that question was whether a British subject could be answerable for acts of treason committed outside the realm. And Casement's case was clear authority for the proposition that the answer to that was yes. And while there are a number of differences and important differences between the case of Casement and Joyce, the most important distinction at this point between these cases was that Joyce wasn't tried under the same procedural regime as Casement, the Treason Act of 1800. At that time, you needed at least two witnesses for an overt act of treason to be established. A crucial development, and more crucial than Joyce himself realised, was the passing of the Treason Act of 1945, which received royal assent on the 15th of June 1945, which abolished that two-witness requirement. In response, Shawcross half-heartedly submitted that the documents, if contradicted by other evidence, could be relied upon in respect of this question of citizenship. Tucker then curiously said that argument in respect of count three could be left over, but he ruled against the defence application in respect of counts one and two. On the basis, he said, that where a man signs an application describing himself as a British citizen, it's impossible to say that there is not some evidence in favour of the proposition that he is of British citizenship. As a consequence, Slade then opened the case for the defence, continuing into the second day of the trial, and identified Joyce's case as being that he was never a British subject throughout his life. The defence called evidence in relation to the marriage of Michael and Queenie from Frank Holland, a friend who had visited them in New York. Evidence was called from a detective superintendent who confirmed that the Joyce's had to register as aliens on visits home. And Joyce's brother, Quinton, was also called and produced the marriage certificate of their parents. The, the last witness was a Mr. Stebbings from the US Embassy, who was called into, in relation to US law and citizenship. And he confirmed that Michael Joyce had been a naturalized American. He also confirmed that an American-born son of that person would also be a US citizen and would retain that status 
even if his father subsequently renounced his. This evidence, in respect of which there was no cross-examination, appeared to take a considerable amount of wind out of the prosecution's sails. And Tucker intervened at this stage and described the evidence as, quote, overwhelming. And he immediately asked Shawcross whether, having heard the evidence which has been adduced by the defence, you are going to invite the jury to come to the conclusion that this man was a British subject or not. Shawcross replied immediately, no, my lord, I certainly do not consider it my duty to invite them to say so. This appeared to leave just count three for consideration, but the killer blow was yet to come. Tucker, at this point, unusually, asked Shawcross, the Attorney General, to go first. And he asked him to explain exactly what the prosecution was saying about count three. Practitioners may well recognise the true import and meaning of his initial response, and these were his words. I will say at once that I think the submission I'm about to make is not covered by any express authority. It is perhaps none the worse for that. And he then sought to rely on what he described as the common law's flexibility and adaptability, which allowed for the temporary local allegiance of an alien when in the United Kingdom and availing of the protection of the crown to be extended when abroad and in possession of a passport. And passports even then were still a relatively new phenomenon. It was very unclear what rights they conferred or what obligations were created. And at one point, Tucker asked the Attorney General for assistance in regard to what he said was the nature, history, and effect of a passport, as to which I am at the moment somewhat ignorant. Shawcross put it in the following terms. The retention of the passport was akin to the retention of a tie to the jurisdiction and amounted to a retention of the protection afforded by the passport. He argued that the established contrary position as set out in the first volume of Blackstone, which was that the prince affords his protection to an alien only during his res residence in the realm, was now changed, and that the protection of the prince now extended through the passport outside the realm and was a protection that did not differ in any way as between subject and alien. The flip side of protection he submitted was allegiance. Slade again argued there was simply no jurisdiction to try him on this count and that this particular argument had no authority to support it and such authority as existed was against it. The essence of the argument was distilled in an exchange with Tucker. He was asked, are you contending that he must always be physically present in the country when he commits a treasonable act? The answer to that was yes. The day ended with authority after authority, almost all against the Crown position being opened to the court. The arguments were arcane. Reliance was placed on Foster's Crown Law of 1762, Blackstone 1765, Calvin's case of 1608. As West succinctly put it in The New Yorker, people with legal minds were entranced and others slept. Tucker ruled on the lengthy argument in a devastating single paragraph. He said, I shall direct the jury on count three that on the 24th of August 1939, when the passport was applied for by the prisoner, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he owed allegiance to crown of this country, and that on the evidence given, if they accept it, nothing happened at the material time thereafter to put an end to the allegiance that he then owed. 
It will remain for the jury and the jury alone as to whether or not on the relevant dates he adhered to the king's enemies with intent to assist the king's enemies. Immediately after the ruling, Slade was required to close the case and he closed the case to the jury on the basis of the improbability of Joyce having made the Dover broadcast as recalled by Hunt, despite the jury being now aware that he certainly had made all of the other ones and for which he'd received an order of merit from Adolf Hitler. Tucker told the jury that they had a duty to acquit on the first two counts and then moved to count three and delivered on his promised direction on the law. He said to the jury that the offence of treason was many hundreds of years old and it was necessary to apply the law in a changing world. He asked, can a man divest himself of allegiance by stepping off the shores of this country while at the same time being wrapped in a Union Jack, Shawcross's very phrase, the Union Jack here being the passport, and he answered the rhetorical question by saying no. It may perhaps have been reassuring for Joyce to hear Tucker continue to tell the jury that they must now put out of their minds all of the evidence that they had heard about all of the other broadcasts and the naturalisation application which were heard in respect of counts one and two. The transcript records the jury retiring to consider their verdict at 3.37 on Wednesday the 19th of September. They returned at 4pm. Having taken not guilty verdicts on counts one and two, the clerk moved to count three. It had taken 23 minutes to reach a unanimous verdict of guilty. Moments later, Joyce heard Tucker say through the electric light, the sentence of the court upon you is that you be hanged by the neck until you be dead and that your body be afterwards buried within the precincts of the prison in which you shall have been confined before your execution and may the Lord have mercy on your soul. As he said those words, Tucker may or may not have thought of a previous trial he had presided over. In 1940, Anna Wolkoff, a Russian emigre who had settled in London, was charged with illegally possessing documents stolen from the Embassy of the United States and sending coded messages to one William Joyce in Germany. Those documents were stolen by Tyler Kent, a clerk in the US Embassy. He went to prison for seven years, she for 10. And in the course of that trial, Mr. Justice Tucker declared Joyce to be a traitor. An appeal was immediately lodged to the Court of Appeal, and that appeal was heard on the 30th and 31st of October, going into the 1st of November 1945. The Lord Chief Justice delivered the judgment of the Court of Criminal Appeal, finding that the evidence in relation to adhering to the enemy was amply sufficient for the purpose. The Court said that while not doubting that an alien could withdraw his allegiance, he said that each case would have to be decided on its own facts, and that the court had no intention of laying down a general principle of law for every case of treason committed by an alien. They found, as Tucker did, that his duty of allegiance before the 18th of September 1939 was unquestionable. They reduced the defence argument to a single proposition, i.e. leaving the country rendered him incapable of committing the crime, and described that argument as a startling proposition and one which, after mature consideration, the court was quite unable to accept. Insofar as Blackstone was concerned, they dismissed that uh, authority on the basis, firstly, of its date of publication, 1765, and referred to Blackstone as an elementary textbook for students. 
The court found that the act of renewal was of huge significance. They said that the passport was plainly a protection in every sense of that word to the holder while absent from the king's realm. And it was immaterial that Joyce might have availed of misrepresentation to obtain it. And further, it was immaterial whether any protection was in fact sought or obtained. The appeal to the House of Lords was then heard between the 10th and the 13th of December. In the middle of a winter, in the middle of a fuel crisis, the five law lords were described as appearing sat wrapped in rugs. It was said that ruin touched every building in which Joyce appeared. Having heard the arguments, which were now longer than the trial itself, they said they would announce their decision on the 18th of December. In one of Joyce's last letters to Margaret on the 13th, he dolefully commented, I'm not optimistic. On the 18th, the Lord Chancellor announced that they had decided four to one to dismiss the appeal with the reasons to be given later, those reasons being delivered on the 1st of February, 1946. They decided that there was no doubt that Joyce gave aid and comfort to the enemy. They said the essence of the legal test was identified as the relation of the treasonable actor to the king. The Lords, in implicitly recognizing the novelty of what they were being asked to affirm, bought the Shawcross line on legal flexibility and evolution. They said it is not for Her Majesty's judges to create new offences or to extend any penal law, particularly the law of high treason, but new conditions may demand a reconsideration of the scope of the principle. It is not an extension of the penal law to apply its principle to circumstances unforeseen at the time of its enactment. They said it was utterly inconsistent with the common sense of the common law that an alien could aid the king's enemies with impunity by virtue of a temporary absence on the high seas. The passport argument, which was now so persuasive, an argument that was not initially center stage at trial, seemed to get stronger each and every time it was made. It later emerged that Shawcross had received assistance in framing that argument, both at trial and appeal, from Professor Hirsch Lauterpacht, professional of international law at Cambridge, who was immortalized recently in the Philip Sands book, East West Street. The Lord said possession of the passport gives him rights and imposes obligations on the sovereign which would not otherwise be imposed. Therefore, the crown in, is assuming an onerous burden and the holder is acquiring substantial privileges. In his memoir, years later, Shawcross said this was a trial of which he was not specially proud. When I first read that, I didn't understand that there were possibly more layers of meaning to that remark than might first appear. There was, in the ordinary run of things, an amount of academic legal criticism of the analysis of the House of Lords and Court of Appeal from people like Glanville Williams, Hall, and others over the years. And Shawcross himself urged Lauterpacht to write in support of the legal arguments after trial in the face of that criticism. There was some criticism, however, which was more personal. W. H. Lawrence in the Hastings Law Journal said that the tactics of the prosecution make another sorry showing for British justice. In a pointed reference, he went on to say that Sir Hartley is a great lawyer, but the course pursued by the prosecution in the trial of Joyce was clearly unfair and prejudicial to the accused, and the inference is hardly avoidable that it was intentionally unfair. He posed the question, was the trial cricket? and made a very, very strong case that the prosecution must always have known that Joyce was a US citizen 
notwithstanding the popular view that he was British. Indeed, Scarden, who'd questioned Joyce, had his US birth certificate when he interviewed him. It's also clear that Special Branch had an interest in Joyce from an early stage and had an open file on him and all of his associates for many years. And preparations for the prosecution of Joyce were being made as soon as he was identified on the airwaves as early as 1940. Subsequently released papers showed the extent of MI5's preparation for Joyce's trial. It was obvious that all of his prison correspondence was screened and Joyce had upwards of 50 correspondence. And it's also clear that correspondence of his brother Quinton, who was heavily involved in the legal preparation of the case, was also read. If there was any doubt that his US citizenship was a live issue in the case, it must have been dispelled when the trial itself was adjourned into the September sessions to allow the defense obtain the documentary and other evidence from the US, which was ultimately called. In the event, there was no cross-examination of any defense witnesses on the citizenship question. And certainly the transcript that reveals an element of surprise at this, quote, overwhelming evidence might appear on closer analysis to be less than sincere. And the question remains then as to whether counts one and two were in fact straw men, and that what appeared to be a noble concession by the prosecution in the face of the evidence at trial was in truth a subterfuge. Without doubt the jury heard a lot of evidence about pro-German broadcasts and pro-German activity on Joyce's part when he owed no allegiance that they would otherwise not have heard by virtue of the maintenance of counts one and two for the first two days of the trial. A sense of legal discomfort is also heightened by the fact that the Treason Act of 1945, which now appeared to be crucial for the prosecution of Count Three, was passed after every alleged crime was committed and was passed after Joyce was arrested. In fact, Joyce was not returned to English soil until the day after it was passed. The trial of Joyce in particular under this new legislation seems undoubtedly to have been contemplated within the office of the Attorney General. A contemporaneous edition of the Daily Express reporting on the passage of the bill said it was being passed so that loopholes that exist will be stopped and went on to specifically cite the upcoming Joyce case in that regard. The Daily Mail said more directly upon Joyce's arrest that the date with the hangman draws near. More curious still in terms of how things ultimately developed is that count three ultimately hinged entirely on the evidence of Inspector Hunt. And in fact, Hunt had been deputed specifically to listen to Joyce broadcasts during the war in anticipation of his prosecution and transcribed many of them. Joyce was hung for the one broadcast Hunt had no notes of nor made any report of at the time, and was the one broadcast that Joyce denied making. Prior to the passing of this 1945 Act, 24 hours before he was returned, he couldn't have even been tried for it, still less convicted. Perhaps uh, the matter is best summed up in the multiple unintended ironies in a comment reported by Mary Kenny, attributed to a member of the public in Galway post-trial, who said, that's what happens when you put an Irishman on trial in an English court. It's hard to shed tears for Joyce. The worst part of him, the virulent anti-Semitism, didn't really feature in his prosecution and began to slip from view in accounts of the trial thereafter. 
In Twilight Over Britain, a book Joyce wrote and published, he wrote of, quote, Jews swinging from the lampposts of Westminster. In a last message to Quinton prior to his execution, despite everything that had happened and what he must by now have known, he said, in death as in life, I defy the Jews who caused this last war. May Britain be great once again. But notwithstanding all of that, it's clear that Joyce met a fate that many who did as much as him and many far worse escaped. Kim Philby, the English spy, said, to betray you I must first belong. I never belonged. Where Joyce truly belonged was always a contingent question, a question which resulted in a noose around his neck and few claim him now. He wrote to Margaret from prison of a potential return to Ireland and specifically Galway. Margaret, described by some as being as English as warm beer, was never put on trial and died in London in 1972. In August 1976, after considerable efforts by his daughter Heather, Joyce's remains were removed from the grounds of the prison to the Protestant section of Bohemore Cemetery in Galway. Maybe it's fitting that it is in Irish soil that this American, once known throughout Europe as Hitler's Englishman, now rests. Thank you for listening to this lecture of the 2021 Green Street Lecture Series. We hope you enjoy the remaining talks, which will be available on YouTube to view and wherever you get your podcasts.